So I'm on a quest to teach uh, eschatology, which is a theological phrase for discussion about the end times. And uh, Jesus is coming back. And the Bible says he's coming back to a glorious church without spot or blemish. No man knows the hour or the day, however, so there's no room for speculation, or, uh, nor is there room for cynicism or skepticism. The Bible warns, first of all, that no one knows the hour or the day, so don't do a bunch of guesswork. And the second thing is, there in Peter, it says there'll be people that will be scoffers that will say, where are the signs of his coming? And will be dismissive of it. Well, we must not be on either extreme, okay? So as pastor of this church, I feel the responsibility to study to show myself approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, handling accurately and rightly dividing the word. Now, let me just make a point. The world sensationalizes end times. They tell us we're going to be out of water. They tell us that, that society, that, that ocean levels are rising, that, and, and they warn us, you know, that our energy is a crisis. And the, 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 devil, the devil is monopolizing with a spirit of fear well, it, that ought not be in the church. I, am not, I refuse to sensationalize the subject of the end times. The world will do it, and sometimes believers will do it. Um, I've been a Christian now for several decades, and I've seen a few things. Um, and so I don't want, in order to fend off the theology of irresponsibility, I want to be faithful to communicate uh, as I study and as I see these things. Uh, and I, and I, so I, I'm getting closer and closer. I, I'm studying um, those who embrace the rapture, and I'm also studying the conclusions of those who don't agree that there's a rapture. So I'm, I'm having to, I have the responsibility to rightly divide the word, and, uh, you know, this is my, this is my burden. And, um, I, you know, it says in James chapter 3, let not, in verse 1, let not many of you be teachers, brethren, knowing that a teacher will incur a stricter judgment. So I don't want to overstimulate things. I don't, want to, I don't want to dumb things down. I don't want to ignore things. I want to teach the whole counsel of God. As a pastor, I feel at the end of the day, it, this needs to work for your marriage, and this needs to work for your child rearing, and for your bank account, and for your work ethic, and for your, your, your health. And so I'm always looking for practical uh, things. So in fact, I see in the Bible the same, a similar kind of a thing. Like, yeah, he's coming back, but like Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 13, we are to occupy till he comes. So we are to be, occupy expresses like be diligent, you know, watch and pray. Um, do your work heartily unto the Lord. And man, I look at our times like you do, uh, it's a bit... It's a bit agitating right now. It's, it's, it's actually fascinating what's going on in, in uh, Russia and the Ukraine. What's going on with, you know, different aspects of, of famine or, or food shortage or the variables or the hostilities we see even in our great nation. The, the venom, the vitriol, the, the vilification, the belittlement that we hear in the voices of people who we would hope would be more gracious and more respectful, though they disagree. So... Here we are as a church. Here we are as God's people, the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We're designed to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a holy people purchased by God to show forth the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into this marvelous light. 
So let that lift you. Let that help clarify your identity right now. What are we to do? How, you know, yeah, you're to cope. Yeah, you're to survive. Yeah, you're to maintain. But you're to occupy till he comes. And I have a breathtaking chapter out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that I want to read the 18 verses. It'll go quick. And uh, the rain is stopping, and we've got workers, busy bees out there getting things ready for your party. But can you just help me just for a moment and just focus on God's word? Uh, I, I have a word for you about the end times. And, but the basis of what I'm doing is tethered in Exodus chapter 18, verse 20. Exodus 18, 20, uh, Moses was having to sort out like we all do, like being overly uh, spread out. And his father-in-law, Jethro, said, hey, man, can I give you some advice? And, and because Moses was teachable, he said, sure, I, I need help. I need some consultation. And he said, the thing you're doing is not good. You, you just to spread too thin. You're doing too much. It's going to burn you out. It's going to burn the people out. You got to delegate. You got to find some support personnel that can you can be that are faithful and responsible. You could delegate various levels to. And Moses was okay, and he, and and he said, but what you're supposed to do is teach them the statutes and the laws. Teach the people. You're supposed to stay. You don't you don't delegate this out. You stay with what matters most in, in what I'm calling you to do, Moses. Teach them the statutes and the laws. Look at this, and make known to them. Two things, the way in which they are to walk, the way in which they are to walk, and the work they are to do. The way in which they are to walk, that's character, that's, that's conduct, that's attitude, that's, that's like manner, and the work they are to do. That becomes specified, like where are you supposed to, what are you supposed to do, how are you supposed to do it in, in your flow in life. Uh, we all have a place. We all have a part. We all have, my Bible says we're his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10, and that you and I, we are created in Christ for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm looking over here at, at Asher Stute, and he was on our staff going through college, and he was a hard worker, and he's, and he's a good young man. I've known him his whole life, and now he went to school. He has, a, he has an intellectual aptitude in engineering and things like that. And he's landed a really cool job. Where do you work? Boeing. Are you a vice president or anything yet? Are you an astronaut or anything? He's on his way. And, um, you know, years ago in class, if I was his contemporary, I'd have been a bit intimidated by it. It's like, wow, you know, and I'd compare myself with him. But now I've matured a little bit where it's like, that, that's his thing. He's gifted for it. And I love it, you know, and, 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 and as you grow, you, you know, you get less uh, um, comparing, comparison drawing, you know, and you get more uh, in a place of celebration, like, wow, this is such an eclectic thing, this human race, and particularly the body of Christ, you know, where it's, it's not a one-man show, it's where that which every joint supplies, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, and it's the proper working of each individual part that causes the growth of the body, the building up of itself in love. And man, that verse, Ephesians 4.16, makes my liver quiver as a pastor. I think that because earlier in that chapter it says he raised up ministry gifts for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. So if Moses does it right, and if, 
the early church leaders did it right and they made adjustments as they continued and they, and they prioritized properly, then they get in their niche and then it causes a domino effect of things to dial in and line up. And this is a learning experience moment and I believe the Holy Spirit's helping us. And that's why the Bible says it's not wise to compare ourselves among ourselves. And the, one of the last things I wanna do is gift project and overstimulate people in the wrong directions. I don't idealize pulpit ministry in fact, because a very small percentage, you know, Franklin, uh, Jensen Franklin from Georgia, the wonderful pastor, he said that such a small, he, he knew the percentages in the body of Christ and how many are really called to pulpit ministry. It's very, very small, infinitesimal little sliver of a, of a fraction. But we're all called into uh, the arena to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And there's an anointing available to us when we get in our lane and we flow in where God's called us to and we identify that and we give it our all. And the Lord's uh, calling us to that. But he's teaching us the way in which we're to walk and the work which we're to do. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 actually contains one of the signature uh, verses uh, concerning the subject of the rapture. But I wanted to just read the preview of it because this is this is conduct, the way in which you're to walk and the work you're, which you're to do, uh, uh, and it really lays it out. It's inevitable that Jesus is coming back. Now, as far as the subject of the rapture goes, I'm working on it, but I, I, I think about just something that was written in the foreword of this book by a, 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 a credible author. He said this. He, he was born in 1902. He says, having been born in 1902, I have by now the year 1977, which he wrote this book on the rapture and the second coming of Christ. And he said, uh, in, in, at this point, he was 73 years old. He said, uh, since that time, and in that time span, I have, ha I have had time to witness the coming and going of quite a few prophetical students who, one by one, have made boisterous claims regarding the exact time of the rapture, exactly who the Antichrist was, and exactly what the mark of the beast would be. Some terrified us with booklets saying, quote, keep this until 1927, so he would have been 25 years old, and watch. And he said, we did, and nothing happened. <laughs> Others depressed us by trying to prove that but that going through a severe tribulation would cleanse us and purify us instead of the blood of Jesus. So he makes a point there. One minister for whom I conducted revival services in the 1920s listened to my sermon on the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast one night, then left the church uh, sick and went to bed. He got depressed over what he preached. When I knocked at the door of his parsonage to ask about him and how he was doing, his wife uh, answered the door and said, how could you do this to him? Only last Sunday, he told the people that the mark of the beast was the face on the American dime, which was mercury, and, and he said, and had them all march up to look at, I guess that was new at the time, uh, at the front of the church. Now you come along and tell them it isn't the face on the dime at all. Like you messed up his doctrine. So I have lived through strong announcements of various dictators being the Antichrist, Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, and others. In the days of Mussolini, one preacher became so convinced that he was the Antichrist that he himself wrote a book about it. But before the book could become a bestseller, Mussolini was dead. 
My God, the pastor said, they've killed my antichrist and I've just got 5,000 copies of my book printed. <laughs> With all of this and more going on in the prophetical field during my lifetime, I think that my reasons for writing this book, The Rapture and the Second Coming of Christ, are obvious and I trust understandable. So we live in a world that is looking for reality. I just saw this at the Walgreens, and it's a life magazine. You would think there would be some solidity to it, but it's science of the supernatural, haunted spaces, the multiverse, telepathy, living witches, and alien life. This is, is a, a statement of the hunger people have for the supernatural, and it's looking for love in all the wrong places. These are counterfeits to the real thing. If there are false prophets, then that means there could be true prophets. If there's false prophecy, that means there can be genuine prophecy. If there's speculation about the end times, then there can be some accuracy about the end times. But I'm telling you, we need to occupy till he comes. We need to pray, watch and pray. We need to do our work heartily unto the Lord. And man, one of my favorite things is when uh, Israel was deported and taken captive seized by Babylon. Babylon was a godless, secular society that ignored God and had its basis on human systems. And they took, oh, about 280 miles to the, to the west, they went and, and took away all of the prime uh, people of Israel, people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that were skilled, that were knowledgeable, kind of like the de development, I would think, probably like Asher, who had that aptitude for, for engineering and things like that, and they just went and took all these people. And then there were false prophets that said, oh, this will just be over really quick. And Jeremiah, the true prophet, came along and said, well, I hate to break it to you guys, but it's going to be 70 years. And um, God knows the plans he has for you, plans for welfare and not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Uh, and you'll come and pray to him and he'll answer you. And what, but, but before that, he says something about occupy till he comes. He says something like, I wish I heard this when I was young and the pastor of the church I was at got up and said, you guys in school, you could just quit school. Jesus is coming back. And he said, by the way, you take your credit cards, you could go and just, just fill, just go and use them all you want. Let the Antichrist pay the bill. That's a theology of irresponsibility. I literally sat in a service and heard, a, and heard a man say that. And it was good that I did. Uh, I, that was before I knew I had a calling into ministry. That's before I had any uh, understanding that I was going to be doing what I'm doing. But he imprinted it on me. When you, when you grow up, don't be like that. And uh, because that's, that's a theology of irresponsibility. Occupy till I come. Study to show yourself approved unto God as workmen who need not to be ashamed. Take your stand. Take your place. Trust God. The world needs you right now. The world needs you to have spine, backbone, some kind of courage. The world needs you to be solid on who, who Jesus is. I know people theologically that have abandoned the resurrection you guys, that's the core of our belief system. You're, I'm not going to throw that away. I believe He that comes to God must believe that he is, that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And, and in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, it says that if we confess with our mouths Jesus as Lord, 
That's exclusivity. That's pinnacle. And believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. That's resurrection. You shall be saved. I know Jesus is coming back. He's coming back to a glorious church without spot or blemish. And so what do we do then? How shall we then live? Well, uh, in the extremes of speculation, and I just, got, I just got a mailer from somebody, a big old bundle of print from somewhere in Georgia, uh, you know, written to me, and I, 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 it didn't say who it was from. It didn't say why they sent it. Plunk. It's all about when the exact date, when the, the rapture is going to come. Here's a guy that was born in 02 that in 1977 said he saw all this. And then there have been different denominations and different groups that created scenarios that now historically they call the great disappointment. There are people that in 1980, hey, Jesus is coming back in 1980. And he didn't. And it caused, it shook people because they put too much emphasis on this speculation about the date when the Bible says no one knows the hour or the day. Well, but you can know the month and the year. You know, I've heard people say stuff like that. <laughs> right? And, and so, so, but yet there will be people that, will, where are the signs of his coming? You could get so burned on that sort of thing that you go to the other extreme. And it's easy to be an extremist. It's actually very, it takes a finesse to live a balanced life. God wants us to walk in, in the balance on that narrow path. And, and it's not a tightrope walk, but it is a narrow path. And if we'll walk with him and yield to him, we'll be, we'll, we'll be longing for his coming. And, and the Bible says, he that fixes hope, fixes, he that fixes hope, fixes his hope on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. So I think just having a healthy perspective that he's coming back soon. He's coming back like a thief in the night. That's right out of the Bible. No man knows the hour of the day. That's, that's, that kind of gives us a heightened alertness to live holy for God, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and holy for God, H-O-L-Y, right? To walk by faith and not by sight. To maintain courage when the world's trying to challenge your bravery. Uh, to, to not be preoccupied with the spirit of the world. Be in it, but not of it. Relate to it, but don't take on the spirit of the age. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, chapter 2, verse 1, um, and it, that in which we formerly walked uh, uh, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Oh, look at this, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You and I watch the news, you and I feel the venom and the, the hate, the hostility. There's a spirit working in the, the spirit of the world. It happened in Babylon, but even then, Jeremiah says, here's what I want you to do. Don't freak out. You've been displaced. You're in it, but you're not of it. You've been taken away from your, your rhythms and your... Your, the godliness of your, your, what you've enjoyed in the past. Now, here you are kind of offset. You're in exile. And here's what he said in Jeremiah 29. Uh, he said in, in, in 29.7, he said, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. 
So we are in the world in our lifespan, and we are to pray for the peace and for the welfare, uh, for, for, for God to impact the world around us. We're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. We're to be carriers of, uh, of love, of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, and of good news that salvation is available, and that there's a healer and a savior and a deliverer and a redeemer. Our redeemer lives, and that's the essence of our message. And in fact, he said this, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy people, purchased possession. We, by design, are called to show forth the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into this marvelous light. Come on. Hallelujah. Just soak that up. Soak that up. You say, Pastor Jeff, are you ever going to get on to your view on the rapture and the second coming? Yes. But let's go to chapter 4, verse one of First Thessalonians. I'm reading the New American Standard Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can read it on the screen. You could read it in your translation. It'll be a little different. But this is the New American Standard, 1995. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. Isn't it funny that Paul said finally then? And look at how many pages there are after that. So that, that's what... I knew I learned how to start sermons, but I didn't learn how to finish them. So anyway, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and to please God. Doesn't that sound New Testament echo of what Jethro told Moses? Teach them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. The, the post, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are raised up and given and deployed for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You're gaining insights. Key things are being instilled into your systems, you young people. You learn it from your parents. You learn it at home. They speak it over you. You're learning it as you're trying to read your Bible. It says you spend time alone with the Lord. As you're scratching your head in the mysteries of life and walking by faith and not by sight. God, I've never seen you, but I love you. and I buy into it, and this is a trip. If you really see it the way it is, this is the great adventure. I watched a documentary of some young men climbing in Washington State uh, years and years ago in the 1930s some um, forestry people got up on a peak and, and I think like a 12, 11 or 12,000 foot level or some crazy altitude uh, for a lookout for fires. Uh, and they built this cabin. It's, it's so remote that uh, they don't even, the, the forestry people don't even tell you where the trails are because they've had to rescue so many people because it's just so isolated and so out there. And I thought, wow, they're, well, that's quite an adventure. And they, these four young guys got together. They rode electric bikes uh, for 20 miles, and then they hiked for seven, and then they had to do, they had to put uh, uh, those uh, ice, what are those, what are they, crampons and, yeah, ice picks and stuff and go up glaciers, and they were, like, really sheer, and it was like, man. And it was, I was, like, feeling the adrenaline while I was watching it. And uh, they got up there, and they got to hang out, and they played uh, 
Candyland and Monopoly game, uh, they had it, which I thought was funny. It's like, yeah, that's what you want to do when you're doing a technical mountain climb. You go play board games with your friends. But anyway, I thought, wait a minute. This pales into comparison with, with, with walking by faith and, and, the, and the amazing dream God has for each one of us. Like, I, 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 that appeals to me because I grew up in the mountains and I, I enjoy it. Uh, I, you know, I love getting out in the ocean. I, you know, I was raised by the water. I miss it and I love it. But man, there's nothing like just a moment with Jesus, fellowshipping with him and praying. And I think about this, you know, here we are. We don't celebrate Halloween and the ghoulishness of it and this, the, all the supernatural haunted places and all that stuff. To me, that's garbage. That's, I, I actually hate that stuff. But you know what? I want the kids to have fun in the autumn. So I'm just going to redeem it. I'm just going to take it and say, let's just turn this. Let's pivot this. And, and let's just steer toward the Lord. And let's just have a wholesome, fun, big old party in our parking lot. And I believe people are going to get saved out there. I believe people are going to have an encounter with the living Jesus through you. In the atmosphere and context of us just not being heavy-handed. We're not being manipulative. We're just doing life together. And in this is my Father glorified, that we bear much fruit. And if we follow him, he'll make us fishers of men. And he that is wise wins souls. And that's another thing. Fear not. We don't have a spirit of fear. And as I preach this to you, I'm not an alarmist. I'm not nervous about what I see and what I'm feeling. I'm sad by how dark the world is, but light shines out of darkness. And um, I, I feel like the darker it gets the more potential there is for a revival in the church and for a harvest amongst the lost. And so my heart is encouraged to where I want to endeavor to win souls. And I want to rejoice. And it says here, man, you've learned some things. You've had this 10,000-hour rule. You know, I think about Jerry Lee Lewis just died, and his cousin Jimmy Swaggart invited him to record some gospel songs a few weeks ago. And uh, his uh, grandson and, uh, got together and they, he got to watch. And Jerry Lee, who's lived a rough life, nickname was Killer, uh, you know, chose some rebellious paths, found his way back to recommitment to Jesus at the end of his life. So hallelujah. And I talked to my friend Randy Travis, and he was there at the induction at the, at the uh, Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville a few days ago, and I asked Randy, did Jerry Lee make it? He said, no, he didn't make it, but he left a message, and Chris Christofferson took the, the award for him, and he said, I'm just glad that I, you, I could have this experience while I'm still here. Well, he just died a few days later, but to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But those guys, people like the Beatles, they learned from them they went to Hamburg, Germany, and they practiced. I listened to the Beatles talk about, in the late 50s and early 60s, how much they played in the cavern in, La in, in Liverpool, which is still functioning, and, and in Hamburg, where they played and played with people like Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and those kinds of people. And in their particular format, that 10,000-hour rule of learning the same chords and learning the positions on the fretboard, learning the rhythm of the drums and the cymbals, learning the bass lines. And uh, 
Paul, Paul was a guitar player and a piano player, and nobody wanted to play the bass, so it fell on him. So he's playing his bass with the left hand, but he played it like a guitar player. So he's innovative. He didn't just play boom, 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 boom. He came with having been a six-string guitar player. So God used that, I'll say, the, the development of that and the evolution of that. And they played and they played and they played and they played. And I remember when I was a little kid and I was with my grandpa watching the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964 along with 17 million other people when the Beatles came out like the overnight successes, but they had already studied, played, practiced, played for hours and hours and hours, cover songs, uh, crooner songs, doo-wop songs, uh, R&B songs from Motown. They tried, they tried to learn, every, they learned and learned and learned and amassed skills and not really knowing what kind of breakthrough or how things were going to happen coming out of post-war uh, uh, Liverpool that had been bombed, uh, playing in the rubble when they were children during the war. And uh, then all of a sudden, ding, you know, there they are. And, and I want to say to you, the Thessalonian church, if you read the book, the word of the Lord sounded forth mightily from them. They had steadfastness of hope and labor of love. And they were commended. They didn't get rebuked by Paul. They were fruitful. But he says, you guys, what you've started, do not let up. Keep on persevering. Keep on pressing on. Don't let up for a second. Fight the good fight. Uh, finish your course. Keep the faith. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Having done all to stand, stand. And um, whatever your hand finds to do, do it, and do it heartily unto the Lord. Don't lean on the flesh. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't you be discouraged for a millisecond. Stay encouraged. Learn how to strengthen yourself in the Lord. Uh, get, get your uh, moment, get your chops, because your moment is about to come upon you. The gift we give to God when he gives us gifts is we utilize what he gives us. And we prepare as though he might just want to use us and have the audacity. Not, I'm not talking fantasy. I'm not talking presumption. I'm not talking of high-mindedness. But I'm talking, God, I'm available to you and I'm trusting you in all the seasons and all the stages of my life. You're looking for people whose hearts are yours. Here I am. Like Isaiah said to him, here I am, Lord, send me. Hallelujah. And it says, excel still more. He says, just as you actually do walk, you've already learned it, excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This was during the height of the Roman Empire. Rome got so decadent it was as heavily sexualized as modern Western civilization is now. It was huge hedonism, crazy land. If you read history, that was a big problem for the heathen. They were into the adult indulgence and gratification of their flesh, and these believers were in the rhythms of that, and they became new creations. And he's saying, man, abstain from that. 
You know, the reason I stopped drinking alcohol is because I abused it when I was in high school before I even turned 21, and it was so bad for me, I realized, I don't think this is good for me, and I don't know where I could draw the lines with it. And since I've been a pastor, I thought, I'm glad I abstained completely because probably in some of those moments, I could, it could have become a problem for me because I, I may have used it for comfort. So thank God, abstinence worked for me in that case. And this is what he's saying about immorality. He's saying, man, just don't go there. Just guard your hearts, guard your eyes. You lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. Even the pride of life. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, after he says it's a proper working of each individual part that causes the growth of the body, the building up of itself in love, he says, now don't be like the Gentiles. Ephesians 4, 17. He says, man, he says, I have... This I say and affirm together with the Lord. So Paul is saying it, but he's, he's sensing the Holy Spirit. It's not just his peevishness or his attitude about it. It's definitely something Paul's dealing with. As he sees how crazy the, the Gentiles are with all the, the lust of the flesh and so forth. And he says, but, but I know the Holy Spirit's with me on this. And he says, but you no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. I have noticed in my Christian walk, people who get in quasi-intellectualism, this is, this is like sexual sin, only it's intellectual. And I've watched people that were like humble and becoming, he said, unless you become, you humble yourself and become as a child, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. Reinhard Bonnke told me that he was wanting to confer some delegation to a particular person. And he looked at me with sadness and said, he's gone for intellectualism. He's gone for, for, for religion and intellectualism. It was, broke his heart. Now, Bonnke wasn't dumbing things down. Bonnke was a certifiable spiritual genius. But he was like a child. He had the joy of the Lord. He was in all kinds of complex responsibility as a father and a grandfather, as a pioneer evangelist, as an overseer of a fantastic organization. But he was so gentle and humble of heart. And I've watched people, I've watched people pivot and shift from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We, we, we know when we get tempted for sexual sin or overeating or being mean and that stuff. But even the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, we know we need to refrain and abstain from, but also the pride of life. It says in 1 John, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are cautions in the end times that we've got to pay attention to and lay aside the weights, the encumbrances, and the sin that so easily besets us. And uh, we just need to, we need to stay humble before the Lord. Before honor comes humility, but pride comes before the fall. I'm concerned about people that pivot and they become, to, you know, like smarter than everybody else and quasi-intellectual. I say quasi because it's like, just if, it, if it's not practical and if it doesn't translate into service, there's something wrong with it. The Bible says pr that, that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Look, my wife and I went to college. We graduated. We, we wanted all our kids to go through college. We, we believe and espouse furthering education. We should be life learners. Um, but not to the point where we get too cool for school and where we, um, we get in the futility of our minds. Um, 
vainly puffed up, darkened in our understanding. I see that in the world. I'm sure Daniel saw it when he was in Babylon. He'd look at this and think, this is, a, this is surreal what I'm in right now. He's displaced about 280 miles from Jerusalem, and he's stuck over there in Babylon looking at this culture that has sophistication. It has some amazing polish to it, but it's twisted, it's skewed. And here we are in this world. The world is passing away and all of its lust, but the one that does the will of God will abide forever. So, yeah, I want to talk about the rapture, and I want to talk about the second coming, and I know it's inevitable, but this is the pre-stuff. And this, this chapter here has one of the most powerful points in it right toward the end, but leading up to it, he says, you know, you've learned to walk in love, excel still more. We just in the last service had Juanita and Leon, who've been married 70 years. Hallelujah. I just told somebody else that, and he said, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And I said, me too. You know, I aspire to that. We, we occupy, and I'm sure in those 70 years, they've been in church, they're spirit-filled people. They've heard that it was Mussolini, or they heard it was Hitler. Or I remember when barcodes came out. Oh, it's like, oh, that's it, that's it, barcodes. And then I went to a Christian bookstore, and I got a book on the end times. I flipped it over. It had a barcode on it. You got the mark of the beast on your book. I like what Pastor Greg Laurie out in Riverside, California said. He said, that's not the mark of the beast, but it's definitely an indication that we're moving toward it, right? But, but, but when you hear people go, well, this, 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 and this, that, and they get in conjecture, whoa, we need to mature, take a deep breath, not lean on our own understanding, not submit to the spirit of the age. We're not holier than thou, getting all fastidious with a bunch of high-minded, uh, you know, sort of weird religious affectations, but nor should we become apathetic. And, and in fact, listen, apathy is the enemy. Do not let the devil polarize you right now from what the Holy Spirit's trying to do. I watch somebody just get all intellectual and get around, and I, I, I kind of can feel it getting around these people that know more than anybody else in the body of Christ, and they get around and it's like, hey, they're suave, and then before you know it, they're gone. I've seen it now. I've been a pastor for 42 years in St. Louis. I've seen it. What I love is true genius. Joe Rogan said of Elon Musk that he so enjoys talking with him because he said he's way more intelligent than I am. He said, but what he'll do when he talks with you is he'll, in order to maintain conversation, he'll adjust things so that you, he's not trying to be too fancy and nor is he trying to be patronizing. He's just making it accessible. And I remembered when I ran into somebody when I was young and I was, I was like nervous to meet him because they were like genius level and I was a teenager. And they were such genius that they were courteous and mannerly, unassuming, unpretentious. They weren't arrogant. They weren't like you dismissively, like you little stupid kid. They were like, hey. And then, you know, they, they would translate things for me into the level of, that I could understand. That takes genius. Listen, God himself takes these technical spiritual realities and says, uh, the farmer went to sow the seed. 
I can understand that. And, and Jesus makes it where a kid can come home from children's church and say, Mom, let's pray. God answers prayer. And he's my father. And he loves me. And I love him back. And he has a plan for my life. And I, he said, he wants to use me. And I want to yield to him. And there's something called faith that pleases him. Don't be like the Gentiles get all tripped out on the futility of their minds, vainly puffed up, blinded, calloused. Don't get all quasi-sophisticated. I remember a pastor named Harley Fiddler who was a Methodist and came into the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the 70s. And he was teaching us and he said, at Bible school, he said, the devil, he wants to get you. He'll, try, he'll either try to get you to be as cold as a hound dog's nose or a wild-eyed fanatic, just so long as he gets you. And God, I mean, it's easy to be extreme. It's hard to stay balanced. But balanced we must pursue. I want balance. Not balance between unbelief and faith. Well, we got to balance this out. No, no, I want to be radical in faith. But balanced in the way we conduct ourselves. The way we interact with the world. We don't need to be goofy and crazy. We're not called into a religious bubble where we isolate and ignore the rest of the world around us. Daniel is an example where he gets out there and he's amongst people and he's, he's belittled and he's persecuted and he's, they, try to, they try to corner him and the, 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 the guys tried to catch him and the only thing they could catch him in was praying. He got in trouble for praying. The reason he got thrown into the lion's den was because of a technicality and a rule that they made the king rewrite some laws to say that, you know, if you pray and you're, and you're not in line with the king, then, then you got to th be thrown into the lion's den. And it was so ironclad that even the king who loved Daniel was obligated to reinforce that for justice. So Daniel got thrown into the lion's den, but God delivered, shut the mouths of the lions. God's shutting the mouths of the lions for you right now. In this global pandemic, he knew it would happen, and he's bringing strength to you as you go. He's bringing refinement in the body of Christ. He's helping us to rethink things. Our identity has to be completely on him. Even the rhythms of our household, the rhythms of our relationships, the rhythms of our church, rhythms of our business. We went to a restaurant that was largely empty. We had to wait for 20 minutes because there weren't enough people working. Things have changed, not just, in, well, in all areas. Musicians couldn't travel and play. Uh, I knew the last person to have a, lung, a, a, a liver transplant in the entire United States before it was all shut down. She was the last one right during the pandemic. We were in Israel and we got, felt the door slam right behind us on our way out. The, the flight attendants were paranoid. Do you have coronavirus? It's like, I don't even know what coronavirus is. I thought corona was a beer that I'm not supposed to drink. <laughs> right? And I guess corona said, please quit calling it coronavirus because it's bad for our business. So I call it whatever they call it now, COVID-19, 20, 21, whatever. <laughs> Do you want to go to the harvest party? Yeah. Then you got to listen fast so I can finish my message. You're getting, you're getting me all wound up. I got to get back to my notes. There's hope. I'm getting back on my notes. What verse did I end in 1 Thessalonians 4? Where was I? 
Let's go with verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Guys with phones, ask your wives or your, or your girlfriends or somebody to put a filter on it. Kids, with, if you're, if you're going to give your kids a phone, put a filter on it so that there's less garbage that pops up on it. There's a way to do that where it'll help them to abstain. It's a help. Do that on your TVs. It's a help. Verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor. That's one of the ways you could do that. Your vessel is your body, your eyes, your ears, and that kind of thing. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. You say, you guys do know God, so don't yield to that stuff. You have those feelings, you have those drives, but you got to crucify it and get it in the right place. Marriage between husband and wife, alone, in that setting, nowhere else. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. So we don't defraud people. We don't do anything alluring. We try to be modest. And that's another reason why I stopped drinking. I saw alcoholism on both sides of our family. And I thought, if I'm out at a restaurant getting drinking, throwing down even one beer, and somebody that's in trouble in our church who's struggling with addiction sees their pastor drinking one beer, it's just too much of a... It, it's causing your brother to stumble. So just, that's, that's just my thing. I'm not... I, you know, that's, that, that's just, that, we just have to watch that stuff. I just feel led to tell you, boy, I've seen people get in trouble that didn't intend to get in trouble with the trouble. I mean, that's, that'll help somebody if you listen. Oh, you sound religious. I had a pastor friend say, it'll add your credibility if you sit down and throw down a beer with somebody and preach to them. It's like, I don't think so. I remember we were in a bar preaching, and the guy had a big tray, a pitcher, and a bunch of beer, and he said, I want to thank you for bringing the Word of God into this environment. We just did a wedding reception, and the guy walked over and said, thank you for being here. And uh, it's funny, because the bride was dancing around, and she had this cocktail, and they were doing selfies, so she hands it over to me, so it's like, (laughs) sure enough, sure enough, my friend, this producer from California, takes a picture of it, says, I got this right before you passed out. He sent it to his friends? Oh, see, what kind of friend is that? No, I mean, he's, he's funny. He's messing with me. He, he was drinking iced tea the whole time. But anyway, this is for somebody. Do they serve iced tea out there? I hope they do. Okay, so here we go. Um, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Verse 8, so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So God wants us to, apparently he knew some people were going to rear up on this and try to justify behavior. He said, no, this is something the Holy Spirit's trying to get over to us. Now, as to the love of the brethren, if you have no, he says, you have no need for anyone to write to you. And then somebody could say, well, then why would you just write all this? Uh, For you yourself are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Excel. This is this message. Excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, and work with your own hands. How many of you want to see miracles in your life? Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 19 was a tent builder. And apparently he had aprons and work clothes. And he was wearing his work clothes 
And uh, that, there was such a, a grace on Paul's life that the guys that were hanging around with Paul, he said, be followers of me as I'm of Christ. They sensed the power of the Holy Spirit on him and they thought, Let, hey, there's, I know this sick person and, and there's so much anointing on Paul that he just built that tent. And I noticed his, his apron, it's like there's the presence of God is on this guy. I and mean, you think it's in his, maybe it's in his apron. So they take that and they'd, they'd go and lay it on people and they'd get healed. That would have been a trip. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, it's called extraordinary miracles were wrought through the hands of Paul. That they would take his work clothes and his, see, I believe that there, you are the gospel in work clothes. And that don't underestimate the value of your civic role, your business position, your setting, the boardroom, the, 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 the classroom, the, 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 the operating table, wherever the Lord has his hand on your life. That, that, that's a place for you to, you to let your light so shine and manifest itself. I love the culture of church and I love St. Louis Family Church and I love being in this building and I love what God's doing here. But man, what God is doing here and in us and in manifestation and demonstration, he wants to proliferate this throughout, even in this party that we're about to have, that this music is saying, Pastor Jeff, hurry up and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life instead of a noisy, braggadocious life. Attend to your own business instead of being a busybody and work with your own hands just as we commanded you so that you will have uh, behaved properly toward the outsiders and not be in any need. Now, here's the rapture part. But we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, or uninformed about those who are asleep or who died so that you will not grieve as do the rest of the, those who have no hope. The Thessalonians were concerned about the believers who had died and, and concerning the second coming and so forth and the rapture. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him, them and in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Hallelujah. Did you get something out of that?